This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is War Over Peace, 100 Years of Israel's Militaristic Nationalism by Uri Ben Eliezer. Violence and war have raged between Zionists and Palestinians for over a century, ever since Zionists, trying to establish a nation-state in Palestine, were forced to confront the fact that the country was already populated. Covering every conflict in Israel's history, War Over Peace reveals that Israeli nationalism was born ethnic and militaristic and has embraced these characteristics to this day. In his sweeping and original synthesis, Uri Ben Eliezer shows that this militaristic nationalism systematically drives Israel to find military solutions for its national problems, based on the idea that the homeland is sacred and the territory is indivisible. When Israelis opposed to this ideology brought about change during a period that led to the Oslo Accords in the 1990s, cultural and political forces, reinforced by religious and messianic elements, prevented the implementation of the agreements, which brought violence back in the form of new wars. War Over Peace is a central reading for anyone who wants to understand the role of ethnic nationalism and militarism in Israel as well as throughout the world. War Over Peace, 100 Years of Israel's Militaristic Nationalism by Uri Ben Eliezer. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In France, the European elections crystallized a truly unfortunate region-wide dynamic, pitting an insurgent far-right against a zombie extreme liberal center that presents itself as a bulwark against the nationalist tide. The traditional parties of the center, left, and right that were rendered irrelevant by President Emmanuel Macron's 2017 victory remain so. But while Marine Le Pen's far-right nationalists have consolidated their base amongst a not insubstantial minority, the radical left movement La France Insoumise, headed by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, did horribly in the European elections. In other words, in the wake of the Yellow Vest movement, the radical left has so far been unable to electorally capitalize on this massive revolt against a vicious, unequal, and alienating neoliberal order. And that is seriously troubling. My interview today is with Sebastian Budgen and Daniel Obono, a member of France's National Assembly with the left-wing La France Insoumise. And our interview explores what's going on. This is the third installment of my impulsively put-together five-part series on European politics. Part one was an overview of the situation with Chris Bickerton and Jerome Rose. After that, we had Grace Blakely, Maya Goodfellow, and Richard Seymour on the UK. Up next is an interview on Spanish politics with Carlos del Clos and Magda Bandera. 
And finally, an interview with David Broder and Martha Fana on Italy. Before we get rolling, your support at Patreon.com is what makes this and every single episode possible. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity, or Feminism for the 99% by Nancy Fraser, Cynthia Arutza, and Tithi Bhattacharya. Donations of $20 a month or more gets you a box of left-wing books. Your contributions not only make this show possible, which they do, they make it possible for me to keep making The Dig better, including by building our new website, thedigradio.com, which has all of our episodes, more than 200 of them, the entire archive, searchable by guest and by topic. Transcripts are coming soon. Plus, I have other schemes I've been thinking about that I hope to tell you more about in the near future. Anyhow, please contribute if you haven't already at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. If you can afford to donate and you listen all the time, you should donate. Okay, here's Sebastian Budgen and Danielle Obono. Sebastian Budgen is a senior editor for Verso Books and a contributing editor at Jacobin. Danielle Obano is a member of France's National Assembly with the left wing La France Insoumise. Deputy Danielle Obano and Sebastian Budgen, welcome back to The Dig. Hi. Hi. To start off, what lessons should be drawn from the EU election results in France? And what lessons are people drawing from these results that they shouldn't be? Marine Le Pen's far right narrowly beat out President Emmanuel Macron's neoliberal bloc for the largest share of the votes. The Greens saw a big surge. Meanwhile, both the traditional left and right parties and the radical left barely registered. What happened? What happened? We're still processing, honestly, the situation for the first analysis that we've been uh, talking about is the fact that the strategy of the government in France actually worked. Their strategy was to organize the political debate around a false alternative between um, the neoliberals portrayed as progressive versus the far right, so-called populists. That's how most of the people uh, understood the electoral choice and they voted along those lines. I mean, if we compare the results to five years ago, what was interesting is that what the Macron's party did was actually take the votes from the right. Mathematically, they just took, I think, two-thirds of the right-wing LR party votes. And that's how they campaigned. They've been uh, campaigning over the past month about being the party of order that repressed very brutally the the Yellow Vest movement. And they've been pushing um, and portraying the election, the European election, with a, a strategy of fear, playing with the anti-migrant 
fear in the electorate and so on, and, and they succeed in that sense. The problem is that they succeed to comfort the far right as uh, their main opposition. People wanted to vote against Macron, I think, voted for Le Pen in that sense. And the people who wanted to vote against Le Pen voted with Macron. Yeah, that's it. I think the interesting part, even though we failed, I think for us, we failed uh, on two levels. We failed to show that we were the alternative to Macron and we were the true anti-system uh, votes because we oppose the EU as it is. And I think because the far right has been doing this for far longer than us, they were seen as the anti-system votes. And on the other hand, the upsurge in the green votes showed that there's um, an actual very high level of uh, political consciousness about climate change. Saturday before the election, there was a youth march youth strike for climate, and young people voted in greater number to, for this election. And it's quite uh, interesting and very uh, a good sign that there's this high level of climate change and young people have been striking and a lot of people are very conscious about it and the need to take actions. The thing is they just uh, put their vote on the traditional green uh, ticket because they are seen as if you want to vote for climate, you vote green. Uh, and so we kind of fail in showing that our position, which said you can't separate social justice from climate justice and the idea that we have to fight on both issues. We made a big push on that, but it wasn't enough to convince this part of the electorate to vote for us. Sebastian? I think the first thing to say is that the result was disastrous on just about any level one would want to consider it. The way it's being spun uh, by the centre-left is that there's an upsurge in pro-EU parties in the sense that Macron's party got just about the same as it did in the first round of the presidential elections, so that his base is solid and there was a big upsurge in the Green Party vote, both very strongly EU. So that's the way it's being sold as some kind of comforting sign that there's an upsurge in pro-EU sentiment. I think we have to be very clear that the election results were very poor, just about any way you look at them. First of all, there was an increase in participation, a substantial increase in participation, which means that although the RN, the new uh, name for Front National, got slightly below what it got at the last European elections in terms of percentage points, in terms of absolute numbers, it gained, I think, 500,000 votes because more people voted for it. Moreover, the sociology of the RN vote, you know, they got the massively larger percentage of working class votes. Of course, most working class people abstained, but of those workers who did vote, about 40% blue collar voted for RN. So it was a very good campaign for them. They have, as Danielle said, managed to position themselves as the main anti-systemic vote. Secondly, I think it was a very bad result for our side in the sense that Macron's force did consolidate itself despite months now of yellow vest protests. It's clear that the sociology has changed of his vote. He's taking votes essentially from the centre-right. Previously in the presidential elections, for example, he took votes essentially from the centre-left. Now, like a vampire, he's sucking blood from the centre-right and some of his centre-left voters, a substantial number of centre-left voters are voting green. But he maintained and consolidated a stable vote. And that's because his base is consolidating around his reaction and repression against the yellow vests. 
partly and also partly just generally he is carrying out a neoliberal program that most centre-right people approve of, mm-hmm. whereas the um, the main centre-right party has been campaigning on a racist, basically racist nationalist platform. And, uh, you know, if you're going to vote for that, you might as well vote for Marine Le Pen rather than for them. And they have crashed and burned in this election. That's one of the big results is that the centre-right has been reduced to a very poor level. It's also a very bad result for us because although there was this big increase in the green vote, which is a young urban vote which expresses concern about climate change and ecological destruction, the Greens have managed to come back from the dead, as it were. They were almost written off as a political force until recently, and they did so on the basis of a pro-market green platform, not a left, very explicitly not a left green platform. And thirdly, it was a very bad result because the forces to the left, social democracy, the Communist Party, La France Insoumise, and the small party around Benoît Hamon, Génération, all got terrible results. Not only were they divided, but the total vote between them and also the sort of renewed version of the Socialist Party all got very, very small results. So it was a very bad night on just about every level. So just to highlight what I think is a central question for my audience. Why did La France Insoumise, the radical left party, do so poorly? And why has it failed to position itself as the or even a anti-system alternative? Those elections for us are very tricky because uh, we were trying to walk a very thin line between opposing the EU our main slogan was, we want to get out of the treaty without getting out of Europe. We are not defending a Frexit option. Maybe it's not thought clearly enough to appeal to the electorate and especially the working class people who are really critical of the EU. I think our our main slogan was unclear and and readable for a lot of the people who are angry against Macron and against the EU policies. We said it was a referendum against Macron, which it was since the people actually, you know, voted whether against Macron or to support Macron. But uh, we were not seen as um, strong enough to be used as a way to oppose Macron because the far right is very much ahead of us in terms of positioning us, you know, the so-called anti-system opposition. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Sebastian has much more... Yeah. Okay. So I think the question is a good question because, I mean, every election in France has its specificities. So there is a big difference between a presidential election, which becomes centered around candidates and their programs, the personality and background of the candidate, their program, the campaign and so on, and legislative elections, municipal elections and European elections. And European elections are traditionally protest vote elections. They're anti, you vote against rather than for something. But I do think there is a paradox that you're right to point out, Daniel, that is two years ago, Mélenchon got the best result for a candidate to the left of social democracy since 1969. We've had in the intervening period, extremely impressive and hitherto unexperienced protest movements, both around the labor law reforms that were defeated and then this remarkable cycle of the Yellow Vest protest, which in many ways Mélenchon was quite right to say, confirmed aspects of his program that he had fought on around democracy and around social justice in 2017. 
it's not been a dead period at all. It's been very full of social struggles. And by all accounts, La France Insoumise did carry out an energetic and positive campaign. So, you know, you would have thought that all the ducks being in a row like that, you would have expected a much better result than the 6% that was achieved. And I think everybody, political observers, members of France Insoumise and others are shocked at how low that score is. I think we have to be honest and register that it's a very, very low score in comparison with what anybody was expecting. So it's a real question, why was the result so poor? Now, Danielle has said that it's partly to do with the far right being well positioned as an anti-Macron vote, and that's true. It's a bigger, more implanted party, which has more legitimacy, if you like, historically as an anti-systemic vote, and more specifically in the current period. Of course, she was the second round candidate against Macron in the presidential elections, and Macron and the far right have done everything they can to polarize the campaign around that as the binary choice, him or her. So all of that is true. And it is also true that the issue of the EU itself is a complex and confusing one for much of the electorate and indeed for many of the parties. It's true that many of the parties that took a much harder line on the EU, let's say a couple of years ago, both the far right and the radical left have now taken a less hard line on the question, and it can come across as confusing or as vacillating or as not being clear on what you're actually campaigning on. But I do think we have to go a bit further than that and ask why, despite these social struggles, despite that incredibly good result in 2017, despite an energetic campaign, the result was still so poor. And then I think we have to, we have to mention the fact that La France Insoumise has been racked in the period running up to the campaign with some very serious divisions and arguments that I would argue are not being dealt with in a particularly constructive way, largely dealt with through expulsions or people walking out and slamming the door behind them. This is a debate between a sovereigntist slash populist wing and a more traditionalist left wing? It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's one of the divisions within the organization. I mean, we have to be clear also that La France Assoumise is not a party in the traditional sense of the word. It doesn't have national congresses where things can be debated out. It's a movement, as they say, so it has a much more nebulous internal structure, which arguably is very good when things are going well, but not so good at dealing with situations which are not going so well. So there have been divisions within the organization. There have been tensions around Mélenchon's specific role he has played. There was serious incidents that happened around police investigations, around, you know, dubious but nonetheless accusations of corruption, fiddling the accounts, which he played a very aggressive role and was filmed on national TV playing that kind of role. And that has had an impact on his quote-unquote presidential image. And I think it's also the case more profoundly, that La France Insoumise does face a strategic dilemma that it has not resolved. As you say, on the one hand, between saying that it's a movement that goes beyond the old left and no longer is in the logic of constructing an alliance of left organizations, as the left front did originally, but is addressing itself directly to the people in a quote-unquote left populist manner, and therefore no longer has to deal with those kind of mediations, 
and a second position which argues that this is too simplistic, that there is still a role for La France Insoumise to play as a pivot for uniting forces to the left of social democracy, even though that can be very annoying, painful, difficult in terms of negotiating with different apparatuses and micro-apparatuses. And believe me, I'm sure dealing with Communist Party is a very difficult <laughs> thing to do. Um, but there is a strategic dilemma there, which has not been resolved. And there is, in a sense, a kind of move from one position to the other throughout the different campaigns. And to some extent, this campaign, the European campaign, was somewhat more traditional in the sense that it was uh, rhetorically at least a campaign of the left, not a, a left populist campaign. But of course, that didn't really hold any water because it was faced with three other competing candidacies. Well, four if you count Lutourier. So that is a real issue, which at some point is going to have to be addressed in a serious manner. And then I think even more profoundly than that, I think we have to be also honest and say that the Yellow Vest movement has been quite a very impressive upsurge of social struggle and social mobilization involving layers of the population that previously were not involved in any kinds of social protests and so on. But it has shown up the weaknesses of the left, of the radical left, um, that it's precisely taken place in places where the left has no real presence. It doesn't have roots in many of the areas where the Yellow Vest has been strongest. It's very emergence and lack of attachment to traditional organizations itself signaled, in a sense, right, the breakdown of traditional left institutionalized means for mass mobilization. Well, that obviously is a long run tendency, which we observe in all liberal democracies. But I think Yellow Vest movement showed it up in a particularly acute form because the social layers that were involved in the Yellow Vest movement, you know, many of them were engaging in protests for the first time, had no organic relationship to trade unions, to political parties. You know, it's not a surprise when you look at where they were based, because these are areas outside of the urban centers, outside of the traditional bastions of the left, many in rural, semi-rural areas, smaller towns amongst layers of the upper working class or lower middle class and so on and so forth. So there is that long run issue you're talking about, but I think it took a very acute form around the Yellow Vest movement, which is not to say that Yellow Vest movement is in some way an organic expression of something that's intrinsically anti-left. I think there are all sorts of ideological tendencies within the Yellow Vest movement, those close to the radical left, those closer to the far right, but they're not mediated, if you like, in terms of a relationship to real political roots. I think, therefore, the relationship between having a movement which embraces many of the terms of the program, if you like, of La France Assoumise in 2017 and turning that into votes is a much more complicated process than if this had been a more traditional social movement around trade unions, around workplaces, and so on. I want to talk more about the Yellow Vest in a moment, but Danielle, first, could you give your take on this debate within La France Insoumise and where you fit into it? Yeah, we, we will talk about the Eurovest a little bit later, but I just wanted to react to some things Sebastian said. The general landscape, social and political landscape, the fact that, first of all, the people who voted and the upsurge in participation are very sociologically defined. It's young people, but it's also middle class and more of the traditional electorate for the left and the pro-EU and effort. So that's why we had some difficulty to target that electorate. We had that strategy that was talking to that urban and middle class or, uh, or upper middle class electorate that is more traditionally 
left, social democrats, green, and we wanted to talk to them to convince them because they had been kind of shocked by the authoritarian turn of the Macron government. But that's an electorate who is more pro-EU, and that was part of the difficulty we had to really connect with them. The other electorate is the yellow vest, but more working class people who abstain way more. Even if there is a surge in the participation, there's still slightly one person out of two who didn't vote. It's around 50-50. And those are the working class people mostly. When they voted, they voted most to for Le Pen, but we also, for people who said to be close to the yellow vest, they also voted for us. You know, we are usually behind the far right, but we are the votes that they cast when they wanted to oppose Macron, but not vote for Le Pen. So I think that's the difficulty we had. But also the fact that despite the vibrancy and the strength of this movement, it was left alone by most of the left, by the trade union leadership. They they never wanted to actually connect to the Yellow Vest movement. And that's part of the reason why Macron managed to make his grand debate and organize all those things and target so harshly and brutally the movement. I think the level of repression that this movement underwent is not to be underestimated to the point where even activists who have been doing demonstration for years were actually afraid to go on demonstration because we feel that we could be injured. That's part of the general atmosphere. And for most of the last periods, the majority of the so-called left, even the trade union, actually kind of rejected the Yellow Vest movement. I think that when you had with the fact that despite the social movements against Macron reform, we actually lost all of those battles. So I think it put a weight on the left and on us because, yeah, we weren't able to actually achieve any victory. And the only one who managed this, the Yellow Vest movement, they managed to make Macron retreat but a little bit, and he was able to put this aside by crashing and and crashing on the the, the movement. But about the debate inside the, our movement, I think it's not so much a divide between the so-called sovereignist and populist and the traditional left, because I do think of myself as leaning toward like this populist side, because I do think that our strategy to appeal to the people and to talk to them and the idea to, we want to federate the people rather than unite the left as a strategy, I do believe that this analysis is still very valid. And I think the Yellow Vest movement confirmed most of our theory about it. So it's not sovereignist versus leftist or anything. We need to be able to transform our movement as it is as a movement, but it's it needs to be more structured and we need to be able to structure the social movement also in a more efficient way. Because when you think about, for instance, the youth for climate movement, where we did a lot of things on that issue, but we don't have enough people on the ground to actually organize that youth. I think it's very significant that that's a political generation that is not structured by any other organized left groups. Now, you know, I think the trade union movement is very small and very weak. The student trade union movement is very small and weak, and the radical left youth organization are like nothing. I mean, they don't structure anything like 10 years ago when you had the student movement. It was very, very useful to organize the protest against the movement. But now that you get this politicized youth movement where we have, they have 
people from our movement, our activists were part of it, but we weren't able to structure it as it is. So we have to think about how do we change our movement, how we strengthen our movement without, and I, I do myself, I really do believe we can't, you know, just go back to discuss and talk with the groups in the left. I think it would, uh, to the people who are so angry against the system, to the most of the Yellow Vest movement, we can't just look like we'll go back to politics as usual because politics as usual is, for the period, impossible because there's still this crisis, this institutional and political crisis, this social crisis, and we can go back to left politics as usual. And I think we have to be more clear and maybe we have to make a stand more clearly that people who regard themselves as left have to choose between our line or the social democrat or green democrat kind of strategy. Either it's the Socialist Party or the Green strategy, which is conciliatory with the system and the EU, and but also with Macron to some extent, or it's a clear break, and then we can actually move on and actually build together something. But I think that there's need a clarification, a strategic clarification between the left, and we have to play a bigger part in, in speaking with all those people for this clarification to happen. Sebastian, what's your take on what Danielle said? And and do you think that the EU vote offers ammunition or evidence to one side of the debate or the other? If the analysis was so correct and it's working so well, then one has trouble explaining why the result was so poor. I think it's unacceptable to simply say we have the right line. We just didn't explain it clearly enough. That's the traditional talk of establishment politics. You know, there's a failure of communication here. We Well, our message wasn't clear enough, but basically we're correct in everything that we did. I don't think that you can use this electoral result as a a point in support of the idea of the federation of the people being the correct strategy. It's either just a hiccup or it's a serious issue that you need to address seriously. However, I think Danielle is correct in saying that there is a problem in the new political landscape, which is shaped both by the decline of the centre-left and centre-right parties and these new social movements which do not take the traditional form of the past and which have extremely high levels of distrust towards politicians and establishment politics as a whole, there's a real problem with simply promoting a return to a lash-up between La France Insoumise and the smaller political forces in the form of the left front that was the previous incarnation. But I think there's equally a problem with just pretending that they're going to go away. I think this one thing that this election proves is that although perhaps there's nothing positive that the Communist Party or Benoit Hamon or the new incarnation of the Socialist Party can contribute, there are a lot of negative things that they can contribute and will continue to contribute in providing obstacles for a strong poll to the left of Macron. So, you know, they have no reason to pack up and go home or to die silently by the side of the road. And the idea that they were going to do that, I think, is completely disproved by this electoral result. One question that Danielle is not addressing is that there are limits to how attractive La France Insoumise is as a federating force. It is not a political force that can be seriously described as democratic. It is not an authoritarian Caudillo-style force as it has been described by ridiculous people on the centre-left. 
but it's not either a political force which you can have serious political debates in. And I think that is going to become increasingly a problem if it wants to reach out to more heterogeneous forces, if it wants to, for example, appeal to the young people who voted green in this election and who see climate change as the primary challenge for the left, then it's not going to be able to do that with the kind of structure and internal structure that it has at the moment. It's just not going to work. It's going to break at some point and enter into crisis. I think we already saw that in Spain with Podemos, where you have a similar type of nebulous structure which hasn't been able to deal with internal debates and contradictions and has led to you know, expulsions and splits and is declining as a political force. That is a serious immediate challenge for La France Insoumise that is no point denying. Danielle? Maybe I didn't express myself clearly enough. I wasn't saying that it's just a hiccup or we can, you know, say that we are right and the people will be right at some point and then it will work out great. I do believe that our strategy or our objective or analysis are, uh, are correct to some extent in the way we analyze the landscape and the way we analyze the political balance what we, especially in this European election, we weren't able to, we weren't clear enough ourselves on the issue. Do we have a very clear political position against the EU and say, okay, we oppose the EU or we are ready to get out of the EU? I actually acknowledge that our position wasn't clear. It's not the people who didn't understand, but our position wasn't clear. And so people didn't understand what we meant because we didn't understand ourselves how to position ourselves. So there's this clarification we have to make. I would say also, and I said, I, I thought that's what I was saying earlier, is the idea that we have to have a debate with everybody on the left. I wasn't even talking so much about the Communist Party or, or Generation because I think that's where the discussion will be easier. We actually do work very well with the Communist Party MP at the National Assembly. I think we work way better with them than with the leadership of the Communist Party. Their positioning as the traditional left didn't actually work either. So who I was talking about was the people who still vote for the Socialist Party and that managed for them to have a what they call a decent vote, which is like half the vote they had the previous election, but since they didn't collapse too much, they thought it was a decent vote. And I think what uh, that needs to happen is to say, okay, now clarify the strategy and to say we can't have Green Party, Socialist Party, France Insoumise just put together and to say if we add our our results, we are like a big force because there's disagreement when you have a Green Party who is willing to ally with Macron at the EU level and who are with this like greenwashing and green for market stuff. It's contradictory what, with what we, we stand for and what we defend. So we have to have this debate and to have this political battle to convince the majority of the people that we need to take a clear break with those reformist pro-market left strategy. And also about our movement, we do need to change the way we organize. There have been a lot of energy put in the campaign, and yet we haven't been really able to structure good enough with different sections of the population or district section of the organized left. And that's a weakness. Obviously, it's a weakness. As for me, I don't believe that what's needed in the situation right now for the people is a new party. To me, the idea that we are a movement that 
left sovereignists or radical left or even ultra left can be together in. I do believe that's what made the success of the campaign in 2017, the fact that it was that wide. Yeah, people like me and people who call themselves sovereignists agreed to campaign on that program. I mean, if we go back to party politics, as it used to be, we're dead because we'll go back to infightings and stuff like that. So we have to redefine our movement and to work on the strength of the that we also also uh, built since 2017. If you also look at the situation of the left, we obviously underperformed. We didn't have the results we expected. We were around more 10 and we have six, which is far below our expectation. But if you see on the European level, with the over-organization like uh, the Bloco in Portugal or Podemos, which doesn't have the same structure as us at all. It's way more structured around, you know, currents and stuff like that. That doesn't actually work so well either. It's a different model, uh, but it's still, you know, you can't say that Bloco is so much better because also the political situation is quite different in there. I mean, we actually are the one who had one, MEP, and we had now six. I don't say it's as great as we could and we want it, but we do need to redefine how we operate, of course, and how we organize. But I still think that the general idea of what is happening is the clearest for me, the France Insoumise analysis, and the idea that we can go back to party politics as it used to be is still relevant to me. I don't say nothing change and we just keep going. Of course, we need to change but uh, to keep the general, uh, I would say, boussole. Um, campus. Yeah, the, general cam- the, the campus and this idea. And, and now we have to rethink our strategy and our tactics. Sebastian, is uh, what's your response to that? Is it fair to say that a lot of different sorts of strategies for the radical left are falling short all over Europe because there's this dynamic in the EU that seems to structurally pit neoliberal centrists against the far right? in a fight over what seems to always be defined as over the future of Europe? That is a problem. And of course, that's how the mass media want to play it. That's how that plays. That's very convenient for the forces of the neoliberal center. It's very convenient for the far right as well. And there are real objective difficulties. So that's all true. But I mean, even there, the limitations of that binary opposition between far right and neoliberal center, you know, have been shown up by these elections. You know, the far right did not do as well as they were hoping on a European-wide level. They did very well in Italy and France, but you know, declined in Spain and Denmark and in the Netherlands, for example, and in Germany are stagnating. That tendency certainly exists, and that is a structural difficulty. But of course, you know, if you set up a straw man argument, then it's fairly easy to win it. I mean, if you say the only alternative to the structure that La France Insoumise has today is to go back to old party politics as usual, backroom dealings with leaders of different forces on the left, then of course, that almost goes without saying that that's not going to be an attractive or positive option. If your straw man opposition is saying, well, if we're not a nebulous movement, then we won't be able to have the breadth that involves people from the radical left as well as people from the sovereigntyist left, then of course, then that argument resolves itself. I think that we have to be a bit more serious than that. I mean, nobody has a golden bullet, okay? Every force on the radical left, I think, has failed in one level or another and is flailing around to find solutions. So this is not an argument preaching for a particular chapel. But I think that there is one lesson that is clear, which is that without 
some kind of democratic internal structure, you cannot make any serious progress, I think is clear. And we can get into the details about how different or similar La France Insoumise is to Podemos. The fact is, it's a lot closer to Podemos than it is, for example, to the Portuguese left bloc. And it's a lot closer to Podemos than it is to Dilinka. Now, that's not to say that Dilinka or the left bloc don't have problems of their own and have found simply, you know, simply have to uh, take those models and impose them in France. I think the idea of simply a mimetic approach to politics, where wherever something that happens to be succeeding at a particular conjuncture, one simply has to follow it, is obviously unconvincing. But it's clear that La France Soumise is a very extreme case of a lack of a clear democratic structure. You know, local committees of La France Soumise are not able even to organize themselves in a structured way between themselves at a national level. There are no such things as serious national congresses. The decisions are taken by a relatively small group around the leadership. And Sebastian, you, you've suggested that this is also, I think earlier, that these organizational democracy issues are related to why the radical left has ceded climate politics to the Greens. Greens who ironically embrace the sort of free market environmentalism that prompted the Yellow Vest movement in the first place. Yeah, I think it's a sad irony, really, that the Green Party in France, which is a very old party now, it's quite a corrupt party, it's a very small party, it's been involved in all sorts of compromises, even on its own terms. It's ridden by factionalism and struggles between leaders of it. And in fact, you know, Macron was very successful in poaching a number of its leading figures, you know, just before the election. It's very ironic that such a rotten organization could appear as new and enticing and exciting for younger voters today. I think at least a part of its appeal is that it does seem as if it is a party that is relatively open and democratic and horizontal. Now, of course, in reality, the Green Party doesn't function that way, but that's certainly a successful image that they've been able to portray. So it seems to me weak as an argument to say that the radical left can not only portray itself as democratic, but actually do better in practice than the Green Party of all forces. There is a real problem with political mobilization in, in getting people politically active. Social media and so on can be overplayed and there's a lot of exaggerations about them and so on and so forth. But there is a democratic demand that is much stronger nowadays than, let's say, 50 years ago. And if you don't respond to that in a positive and constructive way, then I think you're going to have extremely serious problems in the future. Danielle, your response to that? And, and also, if you could touch on this question of of why it is that the radical left has ceded climate politics to the Greens. I think it's a, it's a surprise. I just wanted to remind the people that the Green Party had a much higher percentage of the vote 10 years ago when they first started. They had 16%. It was the first time they had like ELV, which is like not the Green Party, but this new name. They had this reshaping, you know. A redefining of themselves at the time in 2009 and that's when they got 16 percent so it's i think it's a periodic surprise we have with the green party when they do well the european elections are the election where they actually do well that's an election which is all the more fitted for them that as i said the mood of the time and that's a very positive thing is that political consciousness about climate issues are 
increasing and it's a good thing. To me, I may be wrong, but people didn't vote for the Green Party or the party. For the facts and figure we are getting is that good percentage of the people who voted decided who they're going to vote for in the last like four or five days before the election. So they voted for the Green because Green is equate climates and they were able to portray if you want to vote for climate you vote for green i think it's more on that level that it's actually played in their favor and the fact that you have two big and very popular social movements that have been happening in france over the past month it's on the one hand the yellow vest movement and the climate change movement with especially the young people they were able to capitalize on that better than we were able of course what we've been trying to do with some of our allies in the social movement, like, you know, organization like Attack, is to connect climate justice with social justice. And that's still the big task ahead. And to oppose all the attempts to accommodate the climate uh, demands with the markets. And that's what Macron has been doing. And I think most of the Green Party leadership is is doing. And they've been saying, Jadot, who, is, uh, who was the, the first candidate on their ticket, was saying, like, I'm good with, you know, with the market and we can do a green policy within the treaty and so on. So yeah, I think that's what appealed more than the party itself or how it's structural. And I'm going to repeat myself and saying that I agree with the fact that we need to redefine ourselves as a movement to think about how we structure it more, how we give more strength to local groups and with intermediate uh, moments. And we've been planning at the next by the end of June, we have just general assembly and we are going to think about how we do restructure or strengthen the movement. So it's not to say just we're going to keep being this movement that was like with a low level of structure and keep going like that because obviously it doesn't work so well. We have been very aware of that. It's just that we don't have the solution. And to me, the solution for especially, I think it's an argument that goes against the idea that uh, maybe it's not the idea that Sebastian was uh, defending, but for a lot of people, new generation and stuff, it's also more about being free to get involved in a movement without some of the contingency or of the traditional day-to-day activism that we are used to. That's the difficulty we keep having how we manage to engage with people who are ready to campaign for a small period of time for a specific campaign, but won't be the weekly meetings and local groups and stuff like that. And people who don't want to coordinate, you have local groups who do want to coordinate and they actually do in some places, but some other people who don't want and who think like, oh no, I don't want to do that. So we have those very sometimes contradictory pressure, more structure or less structure and stuff like that. And we're also in a position which is quite new, is that we have a parliamentary group, which is, of course, the most organized and visible direction of the movement, because we do have to take political position daily and stuff like that. So we have to work on that. Obviously, it failed at some point and we have to think about it, but that's the process we are engaging. For me, one of the things I've learned the most over the past two years and before when we've started to build this movement is the connection between social and climate issues. And we've been working on that. And I think to me, it's a a big agenda we have to push in the forefront for the left as a whole. I think that's where we can actually 
make a difference and win a majority on the left and then in the society, the connection between climate issue. We haven't managed to do that yet. I think because the Green Party is traditionally seen as the more uh, green <laughs> political party and also because, I mean, maybe we have also to win the argument that you can't implement an actually true green agenda within, you know, neoliberalism. And I think that's also what's the argument we haven't been able to win in the society. We played, I mean, I can say it humbly, but I do think that some part of the environmental activists do recognize that we played, whether you think about anti-nuclear plant movement or activist movement on the ground, we've been very active in those areas. And we had some recognition of being, you know, the one in the National Assembly. We are the only green, actually, group, because there's no green uh, parliamentary group in the National Assembly. And we are the one who have been, you know, doing that, pushing forward this climate justice agenda. To me, that's where we can rebuild something and win the next, you know, political battle on those bases. I'd like to talk more about the Yellow Vest movement. Where is the movement now? Have they been able to transition from a, a horizontalist movement focused on permanent mobilization into something more enduring and institutionalized? Or has their failure to do so, or maybe even their structural inability of doing so, has that doomed them, at least for the present, to either sort of a diffuseness or to being recuperatable, recuperable, whatever the word is, uh, to being co-opted by the far right? I think the short answer to that is no. It hasn't structured itself in a more institutional form or counter-institutional form. There have been attempts. There were the um, the call of Commerci, for example, which is discussed in Stathis Kouvalakis' piece in New Left Review, uh, the latest issue of New Left, New Left Review, there have been attempts from the bottom up to call for some kind of assembly of assemblies, but they've had certain success in terms of the numbers of people who've attended and so on. But I don't think you can really argue that that's what's happened to the movement as a whole. Clearly, the level of mobilization has declined quite substantially. It's very difficult to keep a weekly mobilization like this up at the same kinds of levels over months and months and months. And of course, as uh, Danielle said, the intense forms of police repression and media demonization have begun to play a role. I think it's worth remembering that one of the reasons for this, and you know, it's a feature we have seen in other social movements, even with quite different social bases, like the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, the movements of the squares and so on, is there's a very strong refusal of the notion of delegation or representation. And in fact, that's a kind of motor of the movement itself is a refusal of, of representative mediation. And that's very positive in, in some ways because it means that attempts to negotiate, quote unquote, or have reasonable chats, quote unquote, with various supposed leaders of the movement that the government has tried to engage with have failed either because those figures who have been selected have been trolled to death on social media and had to pull out, or because they've insisted on, for example, you know, putting it on all discussions on Facebook Live and so <laughs> on, which the government uh, has refused to engage in. So that's a very positive thing on one level, this kind of radical refusal of representation and delegation. But of course, it has a, a flip side, which is that if you don't give yourself your own structural form, in which some kinds of representation or delegation, however 
democratic or uh, revocatory or temporary are in place, then you're going to have problems either of self-appointed spokespeople of the movement who are not particularly necessarily particularly representative, except in terms of the number of YouTube views that they get, or political parties like the far right proclaiming that they are the true representatives in some sense of the spirit of the Yellow Vest movement. It is unclear to me how that is going to play out. It's quite possible that you might see a revival of mobilization of the demonstrations and the local actions as the spring arrives, the period of, of social struggle, which is often quite intense just before the summer holidays in France or perhaps after the summer holidays in, in September, October. It seems to me pretty unlikely that the eternal repetition of the same in terms of these Saturday demonstrations is going to work on its own. Some kind of shift is going to be necessary for the movement to continue. That doesn't mean that the movement won't take other forms around other issues, but it does seem to me difficult to imagine how just having Saturday demonstrations and local actions with smaller and smaller numbers of people involved, even if the authorities do exaggerate the decline, can be stretched out over an indefinite period of time. Danielle? Yeah, I do think it's an unprecedented social movement. And the left failed this unprecedented social movement. The left as a whole, the trade union movement, the political organization, for the most part. And yet it still shook the whole, I think it's the biggest challenge the Macron government has faced and is still facing because the crisis is not over. Obviously not. They did some concessions, but not big enough for most of the people, even though there's been a shift in the movement, of course, because with the increase in the repression, especially, and it, because it, it, it was uh, weeks after weeks, some part of the movement, people, especially in the countryside, in the roundabouts, were expelled from the place they had uh, organized their pickets and stuff. It shifted to cities and, you know, more uh, some section of the Yellow Wave movement. So, but still, the support for the demand was still uh, massive. And I think what is uh, happening is still the crisis is not over. I think it will replicate in different ways. And it has all already begun to diffuse into all the social movements. I mean, in every demonstration now and mobilization, because there have been some mobilization, especially on education issues, there is a yellow vest people. It's now a part of social movements. You got um, the chants, and there are two very now famous chants of the yellow vest, who are now like uh, chanted everywhere in every demonstration. This is really now part of the fighting spirit and a sign of resistance. And I think it's very important and very, very uh, impressive how it, despite the rejection from most of the organized left uh, trade union, it's really took roots into the, you know, the mind and spirit and it's a sign of resistance of rebellion, this yellow vest. And now we'll see, because it's interesting, I think, we, we need more data about it because there was, around the European elections, there was a lot of debates inside the Facebooks and, the, and th there are few figures that emerged in the movements. Some of them actually said they would vote for our list and some people known just uh, stood with the, with the far right. But I think there's a strong percentage that actually advocate to abstain from the election. And so you have this connection between um, a good and some section of the population who had never been politicized before and who are repoliticized but still reject the institutions. It's like this 
politicization process is happening, is still happening outside of the traditional political system. And so they didn't vote. And yet there'll still be some demand for democracy and stuff like that. And we'll see. I mean, we got a big test now ahead in the next month because we've managed to win this referendum about uh, the sale of the national airports. There was a big debate in France in the parliament with Macron, who is like selling Paris airports. And it was very opposed by a majority of the population. And so we managed to win a referendum. And it will be a test to see whether those sections of the population that have been repoliticized will be um, will engage into this campaign. And if, if we manage to build on that, because we have to gather like 4 million votes, which is a big number, we'll see the yellow vest is far from uh, over. And I think it will resurface in different ways. And through this big campaign we're going to do about the, the referendum about the Paris airport, it may be a, a means to actually re-engage with those people. I've seen on Facebook and so on an article about the European elections and the Gilets Jaunes uh, support for the Front National being shared by people like um, Arthur Goldhammer, who is, um, you know, basically a shill for Macron. Uh, and the, the spin that's being given on it is that 40% of uh, Gilets Jaunes voted for um, Marine Le Pen. I think it's important to state that that is an opinion based on uh, an exit poll of people who claim to feel close to the Gilets Jaunes, not Gilets Jaunes activists. I think it's clear from a more detailed analysis of what that means is that there are various concentric circles around the Gilets Jaunes movement. And of course, the Front National is a, is a real social force. And uh, there are some far-right supporters amongst Gilets Jaunes activists, but they're, they're in a very small minority. But people who support, in some sense, the Gilets Jaunes process from afar, from a passive perspective, often following it via the news or via the internet, those are the people who've been measured as the 40% who voted Marine Le Pen. So I think we need to be quite careful with some of the ways that this data are being uh, interpreted and repackaged by the pro-Macron uh, camp, if you like. The, the people who voted from the Yellow Vest movement, it's very contradictory because there's all, all different sections. You get the so-called more moderate, I think, uh, that uh, stopped being active in the movement at the moment when it turned really... Uh, it was very, very much highly repressed and demonized, and still a majority of the people supported the demands. And the majority of the demands were progressive ones. I mean, at no point, I mean, there have been attempts for the far right to push its own agenda within the movement, but they mostly failed. And what actually kept being pushed forward and what the people agreed on were actual progressive demands. Um, and that's what, you know, uh, everybody gathered, and whenever there was some divisive issue, like some migrant issue and stuff like that, there were or, or some incidents, or, or uh, it, it was every. I mean, the most vocal uh, figure in the movement actually opposed it and said we're against it and stuff like that. So the the movement that's. The, the Yellow Vest movement, its demands, and the one that were supported by the majority of the people who supported the movement were, has been and are still very progressive. I want to ask about how Macron has responded to this all. It seems somewhat ironic given that the Yellow Vests have had this emphasis on direct democracy and unmediated representation that Macron's neoliberal Bonapartism has itself always been a sort of plebiscitary project. And he recently launched this big 
great debate scheme, which I don't really understand, but it seems, according to the mainstream accounts I've read, to have consolidated his own base. However opposed one is to Macron and everything he stands for, and that's clearly the case of everyone here, he is a very astute politician. There were clearly elements within his party, within his entourage, who thought that the only response to the Yellow Vest movement should be repression, 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 denial, attacks on the Yellow Vest movement. But the other, if you like, softer part has been pushing to organize what was described as a national process of consultation across the country of open meetings in which he and others of his government played an active role. Some of them went on for hours. And this was projected as an attempt to listen, to respond to the concerns of the Yellowverse movement and so on. Now, there are lots of problems with that process, the way it was structured, the way the questions were posed, the kinds of people who were involved who tended to be um, middle class and older people. It was largely boycotted by the Yellowverse activists, but it was a real phenomenon. There were tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who were involved in some level in these quote-unquote consultations, didn't result in much in terms of actual concessions, of course, and that was never the aim, but it was quite successful in projecting a more conciliatory image of the government, listening to the reasonable voices, quote-unquote. All the while mimicking the Yellow Vest's emphasis on direct democracy in some way. Yes, that was Macron's shtick in the presidential elections was saying that, you know, he's an outsider, he doesn't come from the traditional political caste, turning what might be seen as a vice, the fact that he comes from a banking background into a virtue that he, he, you know, rather like Trump, you know, he's not part of the swamp. He's a neoliberal populist of sorts. That's right. And that because of that, he would be able to push through these reforms that previous French politicians have been too cowardly or in hoc to vested interests to push through. Now, of course, that didn't work out for him because he did some very stupid things like not ally with the reformist trade union federation, the CFDT, which would have been a a perfect cover for him, if you like, to push through some of these uh, uh, neoliberal reforms. He was able to reposition himself somewhat like that with this grand consultation. It was more of a holding exercise, to be honest, I think, than a resolution, because as Daniel says, the crisis is still present, the movement still exists, the embers are still glowing, and we don't know what the next spark that will set off a movement will be. Perhaps it will be this campaign for a referendum around airport privatization, which could become a symbolically significant thing. Perhaps it could be something else. But it was an astute move, and it bought him time and allowed him, as we can see, to reassure, if you like, the right flank of his electorate, that uh, he was their man, and they repaid him in spades in this election by deserting the centre-right party. He lost some on his left flank, largely towards the Greens, but uh, the net result for him was pretty positive. Danielle? The idea, the illusion some may have had that it was both, you know, Macron, he sold himself as like being both right and left. I think over the past two years, whether it's on economic issue, but also on issues like migrants uh, with the 
anti-terrorist law with the, the repression of the of the social movements, he showed himself there was no left bone in his policies. Even you you could feel it in the National Assembly with his majority. And they used to, the, the, the one we were talking with, would say, okay, we may do this very neoliberal policy, but then we, we, we will have the social side of it. And this social side never appeared. So I think he managed to talk to his class and convince them that he was the one who would be able to do what neither Hollande nor Sarkozy did before. And he actually had the majority to do that. He enforced uh, a reform like the, the last uh, reform that was voted at the National Assembly is a, is a reform of the public service. And uh, it's a reform that even Sarkozy wasn't able to implement. So he convinced them and he, and he showed them the results that he did all the anti-labor law, anti-migrant, even and showed that he was willing to go that far with demonizing migrants and using that the very far right uh, arguments and narratives. And now he will even go further because now he's very emboldened with the idea that he managed to contain whatever he think he's containing. And now he's going to push through is planning to push through all the very anti-social uh, reforms like the pensions and other things like that. I think that's the irony of the Fifth Republic is that he's really embraced this presidential monarchy, being like very Bonapartist and very way more old-fashioned and reactionary than uh, he portrayed himself. He was to be this liberal new guy, very progressive, when actually his policies are really reactionary. He's got this aristocratic, technocratic, top-down view, and that showed very much with the way the parliamentary majority is being uh, dealt with and the way they're like very authoritarian with their own MPs, the way the government also has been reshaped. He really uses and has the means to use this Fifth Republic system and the strength of the presidential system to the fullest potential. And he also has, uh, I think, way more than any previous president control. At least he has the media system that is helping him and that is fully on his side. And it was very clear with the way the Yellow Vest movement has been portrayed and the way even that we came to a point where even when the Macron police were actually attacking reporters and journalists, you had people on the media and TV who were like, Either they wouldn't talk about it and they would try to find a way to excuse the blatant attack on freedom of speech and, and of uh, reporters and journalists. So I think he has a very strong hold on the, all the mean of the, his ruling class and especially the media at his service. And yet, you know, yeah, nothing is resolved. And there's still, he also really attracted so much resentment. So it's, it's still weakness. And the, the, the biggest problem is that all that is only feeding the far right. And that's a natural danger, even, especially if you look at the European level, how the neoliberal regimes have turned really authoritarian and how it actually managed to push the far right close to the door of power or in power, like in Italy. My, la my last question before I let you both go, across Europe, Macron has now become the face of the liberal resistance to a rising far right. And he has, if I understand it correctly, hinted that he's interested in moving away from 
Angela Merkel toward a broader centrist liberal alliance or neoliberal alliance, I suppose. Explain Macron's recent trajectory within Europe and what Macron and a newly powerful liberal bloc means for both France and for Europe as a whole. Well, I think we have to distinguish what he would like from what he is able to achieve. I think it's clear that on a European level, Macron would like to be able to repeat what he has managed to do in France, which is, as I said, vampire-like, suck out all the strength from both social democracy and the centre-right and recompose a block around him and Ciudadanos in Spain and so on. He would also, he's probably has some ideas about intervening in the quite heteroclite block of Greens who've been elected in the European Parliament. You know, as you know, the Greens are very ideologically diverse. So you have the Greens from Germany, which tend to be extremely moderate and happy to block with, you know, CDU in local governments to the British Greens who are extremely progressive. You know, I think he would, if he's sensible, at least he would be trying to think of ways that he could break that block and attract to his poll the more right-wing elements of the Green parties. So that's what he'd like to do, and that's how he's positioned himself. Whether he's able to achieve that is going to be more complicated, of course, because the weight of national politics in each country is, is very significant. And, you know, there are tendencies that are in his favor. The general electoral decline of the center-right and center-left parties across Europe has been confirmed by these recent elections, you know, in Germany, for example, in the UK, there have been slight counter tendencies, like in Spain or in Portugal, where social democracy seems to have bounced back. But broadly speaking, the centre-right and centre-left forces are, are declining quite rapidly. And, and therefore, you could imagine a scenario which would be quite favourable for him to reconstruct this block around him. But uh, you can't act purely at a European level. You also have to defend national interests and French national interests, as we know, and the capitalism national interests are not always harmonious with other national capitalist interests. What is good for French capitalism is not always good for German capitalism, for example. There are going to be objective problems for him, but I think he's got a good start, if you like, in being able to recompose around that. And he's faced with very, you know, his enemies, if you like, are weakened in terms of centre-right, centre-left extremely weakened in the case of the radical left, which was, you know, didn't start from a particularly high base in the European Parliament uh, anyway. And in the case of the far and uh, hard right divided between various different groupings who have their own differences uh, between them about geopolitics and about economic policy. So, you know, he's he's got a good chance. I, I suspect that what he's able to achieve is going to be substantially less than what he's expecting because of this problem about capitalist antagonisms between different blocks of national capital, despite the increasing internationalization and so on, um, and the weight of uh, different political parties within their own uh, national social formations. But he's got the best possible conditions, I think, for it at the moment, certainly if he manages to split the green block. Danielle? Europe is very much still in crisis, and uh, we haven't talked about Brexit but it's still actually happening or not happening, but whatever is happening. Also, the fact that the German government and coalition is has been weakened, and yeah, there is still old much of the political deciding force in the EU uh, direction. And even uh, having an ardent uh, position than... Uh, 
what uh, Merkel has been trying to to manage on their coalition. So I think that's the he presented himself as the the hero of Europe, but still the EU is still uh, in crisis and is he hasn't won any major battle against Merkel on EU policies. Uh, we've seen now with the, the the election of the the president of the EU Commission whether he's managed to win the argument, but I think they may manage to, to, to find a middle ground. But on the, the main economic and political issue of the EU, he, he failed to win against Merkel's government. And I think that's what is, makes it uh, difficult for him on the European level. And I also think that he lost some of his clout with the way he's been handling the, even if it, if it did the, the job of containing the, the social movement itself, the brutality of his repression, and when you think about uh, the UN and uh, the European Council uh, uh, criticizing and saying that what was happening was uh, very uh, dangerous for democracy, uh, especially as he was positioning himself as you know the anti-Salvini guy or the anti-Orban, I think it's, it lessened his credibility as a so-called progressive. And more generally, on the European uh, uh, on the European level and also on the international level, the last thing is uh, uh, he's been trying to position himself as the anti-Trump and uh, and like his strategy to, to make nice with Trump. And uh, on that level also, he wasn't able really to influence anything on those issues. So I think that's what... Uh, make it difficult for him to actually that what's the lesson is 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 room of maneuver on the european level i think well deputy danielle obano and sebastian budgen thank you both very much <laughs> thank you very much thanks very much Sebastian Budgen is a senior editor for Verso Books and a contributing editor at Jacobin. Danielle Obano is a member of France's National Assembly with the left wing La France Insoumise. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, all forms of the state have democracy for their truth, and for that reason are false to the extent that they are not democracy. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually just once or twice, but this week four times. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our managing editor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes or wherever, you can also please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends, family, strangers, whoever about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>